0: flushcare.com/weightloss
1: The perfect closet additions feel as good as they look and Rothie's knits style and comfort into every pair of shoes. The Rothie's signature sneaker combines game-changing comfort with a timeless style that goes perfectly with every look from casual to elevated. And their one of a kind driving loafers feel great with or without socks and come in both classic and eye catching designs. Find out what the hype is all about. Discover your new favorite pair of shoes and get $20 off your first purchase at ROTHYS.com/slash hype. When your manhood bends in a different direction, visit PDURO.com to find a urologist because a bend in your erection might be Peyronie's disease or PD. It's a condition that involves a buildup of scar tissue, also called plaque, but it's treatable. Xiaflex. Collagenase Clostridium Histolyticum is the only non-surgical FDA-approved injection for Peyronie's disease. Zyflex is a prescription for adult men who have a plaque that can be felt and a curve in their penis greater than 30 degrees at the start of treatment. Along with daily penile stretching and straightening exercises, Zyflex has been proven to help gradually reduce the bend. Results will vary. Don't receive if the treatment area involves your urethra, the tooth that urine passes through Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions. If you have a bleeding condition or take blood thinners, as risk of bleeding or bruising at the treatment site is increased, ask your doctor about all possible side effects and for product information. Talk to a urologist about Zyaflex. Find a Zyaflex-trained urologist at pduro.com or call 877-942-3539. The fearless, curious soul. Goldilocks Productions presents the Deep Reading, <laughs> connecting
2: you to your soul. Show.
3: This is Suzanne Wyman, the Deep Psychic. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. Please think about the commentary uh, that we'll be discussing today, and think about how it relates to you. I want you to feel included and in part of something. And know that if this conversation resonates to who and what you are, then you are part of something greater than yourself. The universe is connecting to you, answering your questions, and answering your prayers. So here we are, July 30th, uh, 2020, Thursday afternoon at 12 noon, here in beautiful uh, Dana Point, California, absolutely perfect outside. They say it's 70 degrees, but it feels more like 65, a little bit cold, but just gorgeous. So today I have um, a conversation that I would like to do. I um, I have a guest with me today. I, um, I, I adhere to a value system in my spirituality that part of your work as a person who adheres to and follows a spiritual principle in some way or another finds a way to be involved in a charitable cause and how to give back as a humanitarian. Mm, doesn't have to really be big. It can be quite small, but it can also be a situation where um, you know, you contribute to something that you believe in and it makes the world just a little bit better. Very early in my life, I had a family that was very um, concerned with the story of the Holocaust victims. And that was sort of like my um, childhood, is that my family didn't feel that there was really an age that was appropriate to learn the material. It was just material that you know, was discussed. And World War II was discussed in detail a lot around me. And I remember thinking as a child growing up that if I had a chance to um, assist even one person that suffered um, because of a genocide that I would consider myself fortunate. And through a series of events, um, I met somebody who was working in Rwanda, Africa, post-genocide era. So um, I felt that it was really a great opportunity. And with that introduction... I'd like to bring on my guest, Nicole June.
2: Nicole June. Yes. Hello, everybody.
3: Hey. Hey. How are you, Nicole? Good to see you.
2: I'm well, thank you. Good to see you, too. Oh,
3: good. So um, I started out my story talking about how I had been raised in a family that Um, discussed World War II and the um, genocide of, you know, World War II, the Holocaust. An interesting story for me as a person growing up, and I think it kind of groomed me towards a charitable cause, and it groomed my thinking towards doing something for other people in a selfless way. And it really made a difference. You may have not known it at the time that you did the small thing, But later on, it turned out to be something that really helped that person. And so, to me, spirituality and humanitarianism go hand in hand. So, none of my listeners have heard the story of Jussie's Place, and I would love you to talk about it in a very, very um, direct way. Talk about how you got involved, talk about what you do, talk about what you love about it. Tell us your story, please.
2: Well, um, in 2000, let's see, 2007, no, 2008, I went to Agape Spiritual Center, which Mm -hmm. is over in Culver City, California. And I met, um, you know, I was going there, and I met, um, I went to an event. It's called, um, it was called... um, can't think of what it's called now, but anyway, it's a group of people in the church that that looks recognizes nonprofits all around the world and actually in California and we work together and honor each other and listen to the story and see, you know, what we can do to help them, these different organizations. So okay. one day I met Jessica McCall during that time and heard about her story and how she started a nonprofit years ago. She had a nonprofit here in California, and she was helping homeless people and helping, you know, women with um, drug addictions and things like that in California. And so then um, then later on she did, she saw a story. Um, I guess she was at home or whatever, and she saw a story on TV about a boy at that time, fourteen-year-old boy named Frederick, who was arms chopped off during the genocide, when he was on a bus, he got on a bus to go help his aunt. And this was supposed to be after, this is supposed to be after the war that happened in Rwanda. Well, he was on the bus, and these people on the bus, these people pulled them over the bus over when he was on his way to his aunt to go help his aunt, and they said, "You know, you kill everyone on the bus," and he said. Um, no, I'm not going to do that. God doesn't want me to kill people on the bus. That's a horrible thing to do. So these men, they killed everyone on the bus with machete. And then when they got up to Frederick, who was the last one, they took him and they chopped his arms off um, and they left him to die. And so Jessica saw this on the news, and she wanted to go down to Rwanda and... um, Help the people down there and go start an orphanage. That was her plan. So, so
3: can you can you pronounce up, can you pronounce Frederick's last name for me? I I never can uh-oh. say it. I want to say N
2: N de barme, um, You know what? Uh, I don't know. I, can't, I don't know. Sorry. No. <laughs> I don't. I don't okay. know his last name. I'm sorry. I mean, I can't. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um,
3: so I'm sorry. So, I interrupted your train of thought. And she's gone down to Rwanda.
2: Yep. I'm, so I, um, so she she went to Rwanda, and she um, she met. There was a woman named in Rwanda with the people down there, and she saw an article on her too. And that's kind of what made her go down to Rwanda, you know, to go down there and check it out and see if she could start orphanage for the people down there. Jessica loved people. She loved kids a lot, and so she wanted to bring a bunch of um, teddy bears with her, which she did do. So she went down there and brought a bunch of teddy bears and gave those out. And then she met, when she was down there, she went to the orphanage and she met Frederick and she met Zachary. And mm-hmm. the, the people down there, there was a lot of beggars, uh, you know, around where she was. And um, a lot of beggars because they didn't have any food, you know, after the, after the genocide it was just, you know, very a lot of poverty, extreme poverty down there. And so um, she saw, she met Frederick and Zachary, and then the people down there, and they said, oh, thank you so much, what are going to do for us? And so instead of starting an orphanage, they started a center, a little center. So what they wanted to do was just, you know, she wanted to, I guess, help the people down there. So they started a center, and they started feeding people, at the center. And right. one of the qualifications, so I, if you want can to do, I, okay.
3: Can I interrupt you there?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. Oh, okay.
3: <laughs> Sorry. So, <clears throat> so the thing that was interesting about Rwanda was that it was in cultural opposition to who and what they are. They're a matriarchal society, and they did not believe in orphanages. And the problem was, is that during the genocide, all of these, you know, adults had been killed and there was children. And a lot of those children were able to, you know, resume some sort of an activity or a life and to go on. But then there was another group of people that were so uh, incapacitated by what had they had seen that had unfolded during the genocide, and The main chapter of the genocide, which was during the Clinton administration, by the way, was 120 days, and one in five people died. And um, and Central uh, Rwanda is part of a land-bound Central African country. There's no minerals. um, There's really the only wealth they have is their beautiful soil, their incredible volcanoes. And their rainwater, and which is a great set of soil conditions for growing bananas and for growing food, but there is no other, so to speak, um, outside wealth in that situation. Coffee, and so, coffee, too. Yeah. coffee, that's right. Coffee, and who who does not love the coffee from Rwanda? It is the very best coffee. So, the the thing of it was is in the story is is that. The um, orphanages came, and they were run by people that were not from Rwanda. And, I mean, there were just hundreds of children, you know, basically warehoused. And it was a very difficult situation. But what the need was that Jessica fulfilled was that there were these adults that never recovered. They had the intellect of maybe a two-year-old or maybe not even that. And she wanted them to have some place to go and to get some exercise, to get some attention. Hi. And so that was her idea, was to take these um, people that in a society, by the way, Rwanda is not a first, second, third, or fourth world economy. It is a zero world economy. They have no economy. If you actually look them up, you'll see that they do not, are not considered to have an economy. So... They are, I think it goes um, Afghanistan, the Congo, and Rwanda in the order of poorest countries. So and they're really, when you have a country that's that poor, you don't have an opportunity to take care of um, the most disabled or, you know, the most critically sick because they're just there's no resources to take care of the people as it is. So she enters into this situation. And she sees this group of people that aren't being cared for and she wants to establish a center for them. I'm going to let you go right. forward, Nicole. Yeah, I'm going to let so, you go forward.
2: Okay, well, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> so, um, so after... So they started a center and they worked with actually a lot of people with disabilities because they had... Right. You know, after the genocide, a lot of the people had... You know gotten some limbs cut off, or you know they just had there were a lot of those um people had disabilities and their children had disabilities also so she um she wanted to work with the you know the mothers and the children but one of the one of the stipulations is if you eat here, you have to do something so the people there would make baskets and all sorts of items um they got trained in how to make baskets, and I guess um, they made baskets and made things so they could sell them and help the center also with that. Um, so that was one of the stipulations. So at the end, I mean, it started as a small little shack, and then it just grew and grew and grew into a huge um, center called the Embumwe Center, and Zachary was was is running that. Actually, currently now he runs that, um, and so it just got really, really big. And I, at the end, I know they feed like um, I don't know how much they feed now. Maybe a, just maybe eight, eight or nine hundred a, a day, you know, over there. And then they also have a school for kids to come to. And so what Jessica would do, she would go out into the neighborhood, um, and she would bring children. To the school and talk to the parents. She and Frederick would do this. They'd go to the people's homes as a home visit program, and they would they would notice kids that would be there, like sitting outside in the dirt or whatever. Like one boy, he said the mother's had to work, so she left her son in the dirt. He had a disability, and they brought him I'm back gonna, to the school. I'm,
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of interject for a second. So, as a society. They don't really ever reject any human being, and but the, the conditions are so severe. I assure you, the mother um, was forced with no choice. I saw mothers that were pregnant, breastfeeding two children, working in a field Hi. with a hoe, and um, you know, children sitting on a little mat. And then a lot of these people don't—they um, don't live very long, you know, after they've given birth for the seventh time. They often die. The life expectancy in that area of the world is 28. Um, it's it's an incredibly harsh existence. Um, so it, it it is it is very troubling to our way of thinking to think that somebody would like not give a child care, but um, the problem is is that once there's a disabled child. There simply aren't enough resources within a family unit to support that child, and the fathers often walk away, leaving a mother, not only with a disabled child, but many children, and leaving her to farm for herself. And um, the houses they live in, they don't have doors, they don't have windows, they don't have a floor, it's dirt with these cubes that have been built into a shape and they sleep under a mosquito net on a very thin piece of mat that we would call, um, you know, a camping rug, and that is the sum total of um, their housing and everything else. So I want to present the idea um, that these are some of the most hardworking, loving, and kind people that I have ever seen in my life when I went there. And... um, There is in no way um, an attitude or a disrespect for the value of life. But the load that these women are carrying is just unreal. It is just an unreal amount of um, difficulty. And I think the Mbawa Center served a greater purpose because a child that had a disability could come there and it would not cost them anything to attend. And then... um, other families that had more resources and that could afford to educate their children did educate their children and um, there's some really um, what's the name of the temple in Santa Barbara Nicole what is the name of the temple in Santa Barbara
2: Hmm. you know what I don't know that either because I didn't really work that closely with them I know other people did Um, you know what I know the Ohio the zoo in Ohio under Hmm. Jack Hanfield, I know about uh-huh. that. The animal Man, who um, funds, he funds, he he does some of the funding for the Inklumbe Center, but that's a lot you know, of Anthony. a lot of
3: huge organizations do a lot of funding uh, for the Mbawa Center. Um, one of the things they provide is like a compound, of the kitchen, and a. Um, a series of rooms, and if you come, and you want to be a teacher at the Mbauma Center. You don't have to worry about rent or your safety. You stay there um, in this little area. You don't have to. You don't have to pay rent, um, and it's it's really um, so many really wealthy um, families and organizations have really made a big difference in how um, you know how that whole project continues forward so it takes it takes a lot of money in order to put these things together um, so but anyway I wish I could remember the name of this um, really famous temple because that is an important part of the story so I'm sorry I interrupted you again so go go forward so then forward. no no so- uh, I'll be I'll be interrupting you throughout.
2: (laughs) So, um, (laughs) Jessica, so when Jessica went down there, you know, she, um, you know, she was flying. She would go, you know, she would go down there for a little while and then fly back to LA. And we would be doing fundraising parties. Mm -hmm. And Frederick, oh, Frederick was coming back and forth to California and to Ohio. He would come here and Jessica would have him come here and we would bring him to Agape spiritual center and um, he would talk to the people there so we could they, we could fundraise for them and for him and um which is really great because you know he, we did that for years many many years Jessica had Frederick come a couple times a year and mm-hmm. you know speak to people and it was it was a you know it was a wake-up call people could see you know what it was you know, who Frederick was or is and, um, you know, what what happened in Rwanda and everything. Um, and that was, you know, Agape Spiritual Center that, you know, had that, which was very good because people, they were into that, into Global Works is the organization that I was trying to think of that um, that we had over there. And so he would be there, you know, showing exactly what happened, talking about Rwanda and his story. He and Zachary, their story and how they had their center and things like that. So and so he ended up um writing a book and so he ended up chewing around writing a book on his life and um so things kind of like got really big for him, you know, and I don't know, now he now he has a different couple of different organizations, Frederick does. Frederick isn't really part of the Ngomway Center um right I, now. Right.
3: Can I interject a piece of the story? So I looked it up on my phone, and the um, center that ended up taking in, and still is a financial contributing factor to the Mbawa Center is um, the Benai Barith, and that's Rabbi um, Cohen. And, oh. and do you remember? And do you remember um, Frederick's story? Um, he was he was out, and a group of children. From the temple in Santa Barbara, um, they took and they went on a trip and they were biking through Rwanda and one of them stopped and talked to Frederick and he was of course you know when you first meet Frederick and you see that he doesn't have any hands and he paints and he writes and he lives a very
2: um, hmm?
3: he lives a, a very normal life they have this conversation and he tells his story. And the young man who is 12 years old on a bike trip to Rwanda, because the place of the Mbawa Center is where Diane Fossey's gorilla, um, you know, place is, and you get to go and see the silverback gorillas. And he says to him, What is it that you would like more than anything? And he said, I would like the money for a school. And um, so he goes back to his rabbi and he says, For his mitzvah that he wants to take and raise money in order to build a school in Rwanda. And that is how um, this uh, how this temple got involved, and it's B'nai Barith, and it is um, Rabbi Cohen. And I went there when Zachary and Frederick were there and listened to their story. But I always find it amazing, um, the people, I mean, it's a 12,000-mile journey to go to Rwanda, Africa. And I'm amazed at the stories and the people here in America, and obviously in other countries, Germany and other places like that, that hear this story and become active and start to follow it. So um, it, it is It is very um it is they
2: love very it. love it down there.
3: Oh, oh. it's it is the and, and I really want to encourage you, Nicole, to you know when the pandemic is over and you don't have as much you know stress on you, really want to encourage you or anybody to go to Rwanda. There's several things about it. One, it's perfectly safe. Two, it's the most beautiful place in the world I have ever been to, and it is incredibly safe. So it's beautiful. It's safe. I think of it as the Garden of Eden. I have never been to a place that is just that incredibly beautiful. And the people are so kind and loving. You can't imagine. I mean, they are truly practicing in their life of hospitality Um, what we say we value in spirituality. There's not judgments. There's no exclusions nothing. I mean, there really is an incredible amount of acceptance and tolerance in that situation. So, right. Um, right? So,
2: right. Um, mm-hmm. for that. So,
3: yeah, So it's, it, it, it is a very, um, I think people are like, oh, I wouldn't want to go there because of the genocide, but it was the playground for the French. Um, Lake Kivu is where uh, is the lake that you see when you go to Giseni. And Giseni is called the Little Border Crossing. It is one kilometer to the actual crossing into the Congo. Um, it is a remote setting. It took me three days to travel there. So I started in Dana Point, went to Los Angeles Airport, um, flew into Istanbul, and after I went to Istanbul, I had missed my connecting flight. I had to stay overnight in Istanbul, and then I flew. And Istanbul to Rwanda, Africa is a direct line. It's it's an eight-hour flight. It's just like a straight line. And then um, once again, had to stay over another night because I landed in Kilgali, Rwanda. I had to stay there for one night because I got in at 2 in the morning. And then after that, it was a car ride to a bus ride, to a cab ride, to a path in order to make it to the place where Jessica was at. So um, it is an incredibly difficult journey. But, um, yeah, I really encourage anybody who wants to see that part of the world to go and see that. And they do have um, three wildlife um, parks where you can see the gorillas, the elephants, and the giraffes. And it, it is just it is just a beautiful, beautiful paradise. So, um, talk about you know, Nicole. Talk share share your part of the story where where you are today and how you're contributing and what you're working on. You have a goal right no. now that you want to work on.
2: Sure, you know what? Right now they have a program. They have several programs, but they have a program. It's called the scholarship program. And years ago. Um years ago they had a program it's all related to that where they were we were helping um they were called the street boys that would live they lived on the street and so we were helping them um go to college go to school get an education and um and so we were helping them do that well out of that we we um there was a couple boys that worked at the center um his name is Lick. It's L-U-C, but it's pronounced Lick. But they call him Lick. And he worked with at the center with um, Jessica, and in Jaceney. And then his brother Paradise, who um, both of these boys. He's his brother. He was really good friends with Jessica. I don't think he worked at the center, but he was there. And he, um, they both. Both boys were raised in an orphanage with 700 people, and their mothers, both of them, their parents were killed, but in the genocide. And Lick, for example, I think he's 27 now, 26, 27, and he was on his mom's back during when she was killed, and um, so they found him and they put him in the, you know, in the orphanage in Josani, and he was raised there for. You know, for 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 a long time, you know, from a little child all the way up to, um, I don't know how old he was when he got out, but he he was raised there. So anyway, so he worked at the center with Jessica, and so he was he was a blessing. And so one day um, Zachary told them they had to leave. It was time to leave the center and you know go find your own jobs and things like that. Well. You know, there's not a lot of jobs in Rwanda. So we stepped in, and we started supporting these two boys. Actually, there was another boy, too, named Tony, who's an artist. And anyway, they were all brothers um, in, the, in the center, in the orphanage. So anyway, we were supporting all of them.
3: I met, I met, I met Tony um, on the phone many times, but I met him when I was there, and he was a great help. I met Paradise, I met Lick. Um, it's, it's such an interesting thing because I think what you're, what happened was is that they took and they closed the orphanages, and they said that it's not in keeping with our culture, and the government closed all of the orphanages. So no, children that had, had not, um, you know, they didn't really have any other way to keep them, and there were women who came forward and took children that were distant relatives, and the government spent a lot of time and a lot of money tracking down family relatives and people and putting them in with family, and there were women that adopted as many as 12, 24, or 36, and I do it in groups of 12 because there were not it was not an unusual thing for a woman who was a single woman whose husband had been killed in the genocide, and many of her own family members had died and she had to adopt these orphans and bring them into her home and um, you know that was that was just how it was seen. So I don't think that anybody you know thought well let's let's eject them. The government came and said the orphanages are not in keeping with our culture, and you you have family members, and they made every effort possible to take and put them into a situation where they would be um, cared for. You know, so it's just a type of mind-numbing, difficult poverty that nobody really can understand. Um, I'm on a trip there. And we've gone out to see the women's center, the communal center, where the women are growing and they're doing a style of uh, farming called up farming. And um, they've planted an orchard of banana trees. Um, they're growing sweet potatoes. And they're nice. renting a building. And um, I stopped and I bought. A-
0: Introducing the new loaded scratchers from DC Lottery. These scratchers are loaded with cash prizes of 50 100 500 and $5,000, and chances to win up to $250,000. These games are absolutely stuffed, jammed, overflowing. You might even say, loaded? Play the games that are packed with $7.5 million in cash prizes. Get your loaded scratchers today. You can't get much for five bucks these days. Unless you go to Wendy's for a $5 biggie bag. Get your choice of double stack, junior bacon cheeseburger, or crispy chicken BLT, plus four-piece nugs, fries, and a drink. All for just five bucks. That was smooth, wasn't it? That's how you're going to feel when you get that biggie bag at Wendy's. U.S. price of
3: participation may vary. Includes four-piece nuggets, small soft drink, and small fry. Prices may be higher in Alaska and Hawaii. box of what they called donuts there, and they weren't donuts. They were just bread. And it was decided that there wasn't enough for every mother and child to get a piece of bread, but there was enough if we split the loaves in half for each child. And if you had seen the sort of intensity that happened for these women to think that their child would get a piece of bread that was broken in half that was larger or smaller and that that would really make a difference to them. It was the most heartbreaking moment I can describe to you in that entire journey that a mother was willing to do so much just to make sure that her child got the right piece of bread. And it wasn't done in an unkind way, but it meant a lot to them. The box of donuts that I brought which was enough to give each child half of a donut, cost me $4, and it was a cardboard box that was more than two feet wide, 18 inches across, and um, probably 16 inches deep. And it was a large cardboard box. It cost me $4 to fill that box with bread. But they have nothing. They have nothing. So um, I think that there's some, some difficult realities in that situation, but and I think that money given to good organizations really does make a difference. Um, but it, it it is complex. It is very complex. So, um, but I, I was I was hoping you would tell us about the child uh, um, about the young adults that you want money for their educational goals. I was hoping you'd sort of describe that a little bit for us.
2: So yeah, so. Um Paradise, who's very smart, he's so smart. He's like the mm-hmm. top of the, in this class. He mm-hmm. is going to be a leader, Actually, he's going to graduate hopefully soon. And we've been, he's with the parliament and then with private people too, but he's been working in the parliament through the university. And the university there, they have, you know, most of the p- kids there, their parents have money so they could send them to you know, to do all this stuff to be a lawyer because when you're when you're a lawyer, you come from usually from a well-to-do family because it's not cheap to do that, but it's right. unbelievable that um, Paradise, who was raised in the orphanage, very poor, is, he's one of the top in his classes, so we're helping him, and he's so smart, he's the top, he's the leader, like, he just did a trip um, just two days ago, and he was like the leader of to his group. And he passed. There was only 14 out of 40 people that passed, and they were being drilled. And, you know, really, asked, they're really. he's been, it's just unbelievable the things that he has to do to become a lawyer. And he, tra- he goes, what he does is they send him to all these different countries because um, there's not enough um, work in Rwanda for lawyers. So they have to go to other countries and so, like, five or six countries that got together and they have a program for him to do and all these lawyers, these, these people who are going to be lawyers in school, they have to go to their countries and work with the people there and work with them. So then they can, he has the opportunity to be able to work in those countries, too, when he graduates. But also what he was doing, which is just so unbelievable... Um, he would go to different prisons in Rwanda and he would talk, they would send him over to these prisons and he would talk to the people who killed um, families and um, people in Rwanda during the genocide and he would talk to them and then he would go back and he would ask, you know, he would go back, he would talk to them about how, you know, um, what do you want to say to the families that you killed their, you know, their loved ones? And then he would go back to the families and he would talk to them and say, can you please forgive this man or whoever who murdered your family? And he would talk to them. And that is unbelievable. I mean, having somebody that, having a situation where your family was killed by people like that and not knowing this Guy could have been one of the guys that killed your family, you know, the person in prison. So it's, it was very difficult for him to do that, but he went out and he did that. And I mean, he was doing that for the last, you know, couple months, um, maybe six months, doing that, going to different jails around Rwanda and then going to families all over in villages and talking to them. And of course, you know, um, you know, depending on the situation, you know, the families would either, you know, he would talk to them and, I guess, you know, ask for their forgiveness. And, of course, how difficult would that be, you know, especially since your own family was killed. So he has such an open heart, um, paradise. He's such a beautiful person. And he has, you know, he really wants to do a lot of good for the people in Rwanda. He's going to do a lot of, he's going to do things in the parliament for um, women because he's really big on women's rights. And um he's gonna do a lot of good. And then also his brother Lick is gonna be a mechanic working I'll on large you. Go ahead. Yes.
3: So how much does it actually cost? Like let's just say on a monthly so so education is really the only way out of this situation. Training, education and opportunity and People in America think, well, you know, this guy's a little bit old to be in college or be in a trade school program, but um, there's a lot of laws. 25.
2: Yeah. 25. So,
3: yeah. so <clears throat> and the whole message of Rwanda is that there's not the Hutu and the Tutsis, but there's only one Rwanda people, and um, their whole message is about forgiveness. You know, that is the regular mm-hmm. government message that yep. is done and they have a, a period of time each year where everything stops and everybody goes to find out if there's any messages about a family member that could have been tracked down because all of the records and everything else were destroyed. So the entire message is supposed to be about forgiveness and setting this aside and continuing on. You know, And, and this is sort of a political remark, but... There were reporters that reported what was going on, and people refused, governments refused to become involved, and the people that were visiting in the area or working in the area were airlifted out, but actually doing anything to intervene and to stop the war, the genocide that had unfolded, nobody did anything, and there's other leaders and other people that, Evaluate the situation today and say, if that happened today, we would definitely get involved. In fact, um, Obama placed um, a force at the border of the Congo because of the desire to capture Cooney. So we still haven't captured him, but um, it was the first time that private citizens went to a president and said, Would you please, um, you know, place an armed force? forces there in that situation. And so the American dollar can be used in that part of, actually it can be used anywhere in Rwanda. They love to get American dollars, but they also get change in American dollars. So there is an American armed forces presence there today um, as a result of Obama. But the problem is, is that the people that become educated have to find a way to leave that area and establish a different life. Um, and I think that is the most important thing that can be done. Um, you know And I think um, the Country of a Thousand Hills um, and the Bishop of Rwanda and of course, Frederick and uh, Barme are three excellent, excellent books that describe what happened in Rwanda. Uh, and and the aftermath of the whole situation, but talk to me about the opportunities for people to get an education and have skills to actually make a difference in the world. I mean, this is a very small country and a very small population, but you know,
2: talk to me about. Well, you know, the opportunities. Okay. Sorry, the opportunities are is. Like you were saying, um, for example, like, you know, for Paradise, you were asking me how much it costs. So every time we have to send him on a trip, it's about $300 or more, depending on how far he has to go. So we've been doing that, like, every couple weeks. He's got to go somewhere else. And so it's been, you know, it's been adding up (laughs) a lot, so... Um, it's not like you know just twenty dollars, but it's three hundred dollars or three fifty, depends on where we where he goes. So anyway, so his opportunity would be that he can go to different countries and work in different countries also. So um, you know, with this education that he's getting, you know, and it's um, what they changed some things up in the university. And they, it was k- kind of a new. I guess they changed things up. It was a new program. He was supposed to graduate last year, but with the COVID thing and everything else, ended up being later. And they added more trips and more, more trips for you know for um, getting trainings and things like that to the program. So mm-hmm. um, it's been it's been an ordeal, <laughs> but anyway, it's been very good because he's so smart and. You know, there's no way that I could let a a, a boy that smart, who is number, t- number one in his class, I mean, so smart, that how can you let that go and not help somebody like that so they can go and have a life, you know, have a good life after they graduate, you know, being a lawyer, it's, you know, he's going to do a lot of great changes for the people there and be in the parliament and be able to you know, do great things. So, um, and then um, other, like Lick, for example, he's going to, we sent him to a lot of schooling before to be a taxi driver, be a driver, but there's, you have to have a lot more training to do that, and so there wasn't enough, there's not enough cars there for people to buy or to rent, so um, for him, he's going to, He wanted to, he was very into big machinery, you know, things like that. And so that's why he wants to be a mechanic for, you know, for big construction, you know, maybe tractors and uh, things that do construction and big trucks. And there's all, you know, there's always a job for him to do, to be able to do that because there's so much need, there's need for that, you know. So there's... um, so you know the whole thing is is to not to give people money all the time, but it's to help them so they can live and they can make something out of their lives but we're the ones who are you know we're, we're the ones who want to do that for these boys so they can they can get a good job and not just give money to feed them that 's not what we want to do. We want to make it so they can find the, they can live and live on their own without dependence on. Anybody else. So. <laughs> so, yeah,
3: and it is, it is, um, money goes so much further in Rwanda. Um, I took a bus ride and it was from Kilgali and it took me into Jesenny and it was a four hour bus ride and it was $4. Um, yeah. You know, money goes so much further. I had a beautiful breakfast of toast and eggs and coffee, and it was $1.85. The cost of things is incredibly, incredibly low, and I'm sure that some of the things that they offered me were definitely a Western price because I look like a rich American to their eyes. Um, I stayed in a nunnery, and it was Mm -hmm. $12.50 a night, and it included hot running water, so I could actually take a shower, and um, internet, and a TV set in the lobby, and um, security. So, And it was just incredibly beautiful, super clean, and just really beautiful. So I really understand how the French went to Lake Kivu and spent time there vacationing And a lot of, I guess a lot of people don't really understand this, but a lot of the purses and leather products um, that you buy from some of the top houses in Europe are actually done in Africa and then are finished in Europe. So um, one of the ideas, and there's so many people that I saw in um, Rwanda were working on sewing machines, and there's not a reliable source of electricity, so they were using the old treadle, singer sewing machines.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, mm-hmm. Um, and they had just amazing skills at sewing things. And you could buy purses there. Um, you know, not the kind of purses that you and I would wear every day, but they were just really, some of the purses were incredible. So the idea is, is to find some sort of an um, industry for the people of that area so that they can um, become self-supporting. And so it is an extremely complex process. It's a very complex process. They are—they um, are not—they don't consider themselves Muslims, but um, they during the genocide that was the predominant religion was—they um, were Muslims, and still they—they don't—they um, don't have pigs, and pigs are a very cheap, easy item to raise. They have goats. Everybody has chickens when you have farming. So there's chickens and there's goats, but um, still, um, still they don't they don't do pigs. So it, there are some interesting uh, problems there, um, but primarily they are a farming society and they have been around since before the Bible was written, and um, they're one of the most ancient civilizations alive today on the planet, and so. There's a lot of things that they know and that they practice that are not in keeping with our value system, but um, they think that the focus really in the situation with Rwanda should not be focused on asking them to change, but in supporting them on how they want to take and live in their own society. I mean, obviously in an educated manner, because there are some of the most brilliant scholars coming out of that region of the world um, because it's so important. So um, so you want money in order to take and educate um, the underprivileged people that don't have access to education unless they have somebody who sponsors them. It's the sponsorship that you're looking for, right?
2: Yes, yes. And, you know, even after these boys graduate, you know, it would be good to gonna be nice to carry this on for other kids that are you know that have the same situation that you know don't haven't they don't have the money to be able to go to college and there's a lot of corruption uh, mm-hmm. paradise he had supposedly he had a scholarship to go to college and somebody um, somebody stole all the money so um, so mm-hmm. he didn't so his opportunities were gone, so then we stepped in and started supporting him but um you know it wasn't in, it's not inexpensive, like you were saying all the places that you've gone to in Kilgally I guess the education is more expensive and to take these trips um it's not like twenty dollars, but if people want to donate, whatever people want to do to help out is great, you know so. Sure.
3: So that's that's really the um and amazingly enough, Nicole, we're like um we're like down to our final twelve minutes in this conversation. You've done really, really well. So oh, thank um, you So, much. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, um
2: it goes
3: it goes really, really fast. I mean, this is it seems like it's a long time, but you start talking and you start looking at the I know. um story and um so um, so Jessica is 81 years old, and she's living in uh, – where is she living? She's, in, outside she's of living
2: Jacene. in – she's living outside of Jacene. Um I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> she bought a piece of land there, and she has right. a co-op there. And so right. she women have, you know, they're – they planted, like you said, different um, vegetables there. And um, – so she's living there right now and um and um yeah it's very rural there, but I guess she's she's she loves it there, so um, she's gone through some issues she yeah
3: it's so beautiful there you can't imagine how beautiful it is, but it is a farming situation and I went out there into the i went to the women's co-op and they they don't Their therapy and their way of working problems out is is that they get together, they make music, and they dance, and they celebrate, and they enjoy life. That is how they work through things in their life. Because there's no no need for therapy. There's no therapy. Mm -hmm. Their therapy is singing and dancing and clapping and, and moving. And I went out there into this rural setting, and really, I mean, this is really the middle of nowhere, and there's like this. It looks like this layer of fog is just hanging over the area. And I said, "What is that?" And they said, "Oh, that's the steam from the volcano." And so there's a large volcano, and you can see this. You know, it. it I guess there's a volcano there, and it's called. Um, people go up there, and it's the largest lava lake in the world. And people go up to see the um to see the lava lake and of course there's you know springs that you can go in and sit and get a mud bath and you know get soaked in sulfur and all of that stuff but um it is the most incredible fertile soil there's no um there's not very many cars or or motorcycles motorcycles work as taxis in that area and um it's just the most incredible air it's the most incredible soil and it is just incredibly beautiful I I can't even tell you how beautiful it is it's just breathtaking and um, you would think that with all the tragedy of the um, Civil War and the genocide uh, that occurred that these people would be very unhappy and I did see the mass graves you know the problem was um, an extreme problem they had to find a way to bury the bodies because there was cholera spreads through unburied bodies. And then they had a cholera outbreak because they couldn't get the bodies buried in time. And I did see those mass graves. And you would think these people would be unhappy or they would be sad. And for the most part, I will tell you, they are some of the most hardworking, um, generous, kind people that are very, very loving people. The only problem in that situation is, is that... There are not many old people. I was one of four old people that I saw there, and I'm 60 years old, and it was not a, I was one of the oldest people. So Jessica, being 81 years old, I can't explain to you how important that is, that somebody could live that long and have survived life and get to that age. It means a lot to the people of Rwanda to have elders, so there are not many elderly people. They either died off in the genocide, or they died off from overworking post-genocide, um, or they just died of old age. So there are not many old people there, um, and that obviously, through time, will change. But um, and I want to tell you something. If you're there and you're living there, it is the most perfect place to live. You have one health problem. You have one difficulty and it's just incredibly difficult to sort it out. So, Nicole, do with me my short little story of me traveling there and bringing Jessica home. It was an interesting journey, and and maybe there's part of the story that I don't know. She got injured, and um, one of the people in the center by accident knocked her down, and we believe it was a, a, a woman who... You know, how about the emotional and psychological development of right. a two-year-old?
2: A, 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 a young adult with a disability, so with autism yes. or some kind of disability, um, yeah, knocked her down because she only had the capacity of a, 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 a three-year-old or a five-year-old or, you know, just a... I used to work with kids with special needs, so I understand that, you know? So, okay. yeah.
3: They knocked her you down.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: She had to travel to kick Ollie and she had an operation.
2: Right, and she had an operation, and Jessica didn't realize she had a lot of teeth work done here in uh, TJ, and I guess her teeth got, um, she got infections understand. in her teeth without knowing about it. So when you have infections in your teeth, it goes through your whole system. So those infections caused her body not to be able to um after she had the surgery, she had screws put in her leg. And after that, the the infection caused the screws to come out of her legs or her hip because it couldn't right. stay in there because of all the infection in her body. So it was, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But I'm, I'm surprised she even made it through all that. So you the truth. But, um, right. So she came, yeah, then she had to come back here and get another surgery done and have her teeth done first and then have another surgery done. And
3: um, let's go. so let's go back let's go back to the point where she goes and has the surgery done and the body rejects the hardware and there's no yeah. healing going on. She's just in extraordinary pain. She's in a wheelchair and this is not an area where there's sidewalks or roads. There is dirt and lava rock. That is all right. there is in this area. And so I traveled there to um, Rwanda and um, we organized how we're going to exit the situation. But at the time that I got there, I took one look at her and I thought, there's no way she can put any weight or even try and move that leg. And I wouldn't let anybody else put her in or out of that wheelchair. And I lifted her out of the car, into the wheelchair, out of the wheelchair, back into mm-hmm. the car, over and over again during that time that I was there doing different things. She got here to America. She got checked into the hospital where her insurance was authorized. And at 2 a.m., the doctor came in and he said to her, don't move, don't lift that foot, don't try and do anything with it, don't try and move a muscle in it. He said, if you do, um, we don't know what will happen and we don't know if it will be able to be fixed. And at that point, they had some very serious concerns as to whether or not they were actually going to be able to save that leg. It was so serious. Wow. I mean, I looked at her, and I knew how serious it was. And the people that were around her that were assisting her in daily life, I'm sure it took a lot of offense to me taking control of the situation. But it looked so precarious. It was unbelievable. And the amount of pain that she was in, um, I think that it caused her blood pressure to be very high. It was a very, very serious situation, and there was no other way to bring her out. There was no money for a medevac. Um, there was, there's no other way to get somebody like that out. Somebody has to travel to the location, get the individual, take them back to the, um, take them back to the plane, and take them home, and. Um, Julie, who was part of the group, she's the one who paid for it, and she insisted that Jessica get a first-class ticket to come home on. And um, what a difference that made. I cannot tell you how wonderful Turkish Airlines were. They did everything to take care of Jessica and I um, for transferring planes and doing everything. Once we got to the airport and we actually got on the plane, they took care of everything. And that, um, by the way, that flight is a 23 um, hour flight, in case you're curious wow. how long it takes to take and yeah, fly from. <laughs> so um, it's 12,000 miles. And, um, you know. I don't know
2: how she did it. I don't know how you did it <laughs> with all that.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. So. Tell people how they can get in touch with you, and then that's it. We're wrapping up the show, Nicole. You did it.
2: You know they can go to Jesse's Place, J E S S I apostrophe S Place, P L A C E Rwanda mm-hmm. dot com. Okay. Yeah, and uh, they can donate to that. They can donate, you know, to the scholarship program, which would be great. And um, as long as they let them know um, what it's going to, it's going to the scholarship program. Um, they getting in touch with you. They can get in touch with me also, and I can, um, I g- I can give you my email address. It's um, W-I-S-E-B-U-R-N girl, G-I-R-L. It's Girl 1981 at gmail.com.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm, Okay. Um is there a web page for Jesse's Place?
2: There is a website, yes. On Jesse's Place, dot com. Or org. Okay. No, .org. I, they okay. changed it to dot org, yeah. Okay. Have a phone number? You know what? Um I can give you uh Let's see. My phone number um, is uh,
3: 310-387-4978. Well, absolutely fabulous. Thanks for doing this with me. And,
2: yeah, well, um, thank you.
3: Yeah. The Deep Breathing, connecting you to your soul. This has been Suzanne Wyman. It's 714 714- Thank you. Blessings. Thank you, Nicole, for joining me. Great story. Very helpful. I appreciate your time and effort. And um, thank you You to everybody who listened today. Have a great day. And I'll see you next week.
2: Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank
3: you.
1: Don't want the fun to end? Grab more refreshments. Then head over to the Goldilocks Productions YouTube channel. With the huge selection of shows, the fun doesn't have to end.
0: You can't get much for five bucks these days unless you go to Wendy's for a $5 biggie bag. Get your choice of double stack, junior bacon cheeseburger, or crispy chicken BLT, plus four piece snugs, fries, and a drink, all for just five bucks. <laughs> That was smooth, wasn't it? That's how you're going to feel when you get that biggie bag at Wendy's. U.S. price of participation may vary. Includes four-piece nuggets, small soft drink, and small fry. Prices may be higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder
1: of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.